0: And the rest of us, as we are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from Philippians 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Then, in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are now at the very end of our Philippian sermon series. We come to the conclusion of this letter even as summer begins. And I'm looking forward to seeing this passage, looking at this passage with you. But, uh, Before we go any further, let's pause uh, to pray and ask for God's help. Father, we do not want to take reading or listening to your word lightly. You you are speaking to us in it. You, the God of the universe, speak to us, and your words are life. And so, Lord, we ask, would you please help us by your spirit as we pray think of your spirit on this pentecost sunday we ask that your spirit would open our minds and our hearts to receive that life that you have for us in Christ Jesus to be changed, renewed, made into the people that you call us to be even as we hear your word this morning and we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So I don't know if you glanced to the other side of the bulletin set next to the scripture, you might have seen our Uh, sermon title for this morning and if you have I wonder if you are wondering what is going on with me I mean last week I had an illustration about Mr. Rogers and not just an illustration but it was an extended illustration right and then this week the sermon is entitled Christ-centered friendship have I just gone all touchy-feely on you have I lost my theological edge I suspect you're probably not wondering that. But I was wondering that as I was thinking about this. And, and here's what I've come to the conviction of. I don't think I, I don't think we as Christians think about friendship enough. I mean, if we're honest, there are certain things that feel more spiritual. Like we know we should talk about prayer, evangelism, knowing God. But friendship just doesn't kind of feel like it makes the cut right? I mean, it's like, oh, okay, I'm not sure how, how Christian that actually is. But, but here's the thing, it really, truly, deeply is. I don't believe that you can really know who Christ is without realizing the importance of friendship. And we don't really understand what friendship is unless we understand how it connects to Christ. Christ and friendship are integrally connected to each other. Why do I say that? Well, scripture, we have seen, we've been seeing as we've been looking through the, the letter to the Philippians that... that That scripture says that we are called to be in unity. Christ came and died, uniting us not only to God, but to each other. Unity is so significant, I'd say it's central to the gospel. And what is unity? If we just think unity is just about not arguing with each other, that's too small of a view of unity. If we think it's just about agreeing with each other, well, that's not quite right either. What is really unity? Unity is when there is affection for each other. There is partnership. There is camaraderie. There's commitment. And another word for that is friendship. Friendship matters to Christ. When we talk about unity, we're talking about friendship. And, and likewise, I want to say that we don't really understand what friendship is about. We cannot live as friends in the way we were meant to be if we don't understand how it connects to Jesus. We've been saying again and again, Philippians says that to live is Christ. That means that every aspect of life is defined by Jesus, and that includes friendship. We will never fully understand friendship unless we understand how Jesus is at the center of it. And I want to suggest that that is actually what we see in our passage this morning. This is something I think Paul has been hinting at and pointing at throughout this letter. And here, as he just does again and again in the letter to the Philippians, he doesn't just tell us about the connection between Jesus and friendship. He shows us. He is modeling for us, as he is for the Philippian church, how the two go together. And the way he does this is through a really strange thank you note. So in case you haven't figured this out yet, Philippians is kind of written as an extended thank you note. When when this is happening, Paul, you might remember, is in prison. He's been in Rome in prison for... Lots of time, and it's hundreds of miles away, and the Philippian church hears about that, they're worried, and so they make this big collection, and they send Epaphroditus away, hundreds of miles to Rome, and Paul gets it, and Paul is grateful, and he sends this letter to the Philippians, and the letter, of course, has all this counsel that we've looked at, but at the very end, we see that there is a thank you, an expression of gratitude for what the Philippian church has done for him, but it's a weird expression of gratitude if you pay attention to it. You know, verse 10 I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And that's another way of saying, hey, I'm really grateful for this gift that you've given to me. But then, notice what he says in verse 11. Uh, not that I'm speaking of being in need. And then he goes on for a couple of verses of basically saying just how little he actually needs the gift. You know, I am completely content. I did not need this because I have joy. Yet, in verse 14, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Now imagine if you got a letter like this. Like, you know, say say you have a friend who's in college and you decided you wanted to send a care package to them. So you baked these cookies and you sent it. Maybe it's your child, maybe it's a friend. And you got this thank you note saying, hey, thanks so much for the cookies. Now I have to say, I'm really actually not that hungry. And our cafeteria has better cookies than you can make. I mean, they're awesome cookies. But that was really nice that you did that. I mean... I wouldn't really love getting a thank you note like that. And doesn't it feel a little bit like that here? You are so great, not that I have any need because I'm content in Jesus, but thanks anyway. I mean, what kind of a person writes a thank you note like that? The answer is actually a really good friend. See, there's something about giving and receiving within friendship that can expose the nature of the friendship and Paul really wants the Philippians to understand that this friendship is not a friendship that is about usefulness it's not about just what we get out of it that this friendship has a deeper foundation and that friendship is found in Christ now to understand how i see that here we need to back up for a moment and do a brief detour and and understand that this concept of friendship there's a conversation that's been going on for centuries In this culture about the nature of friendship. In fact, Aristotle, yes, I'm I'm kind of geeking out for a moment talking about Aristotle, but it's relevant. Aristotle famously writes this extended treatment of what friendship is, and Paul would likely be familiar with that, and that would be in the culture. People would be thinking in these terms. And Aristotle says there's really three kinds of friendship. There's the friendship of usefulness, there's the friendship of pleasure, and then there's the friendship of the good. Now, friendship of usefulness is basically when you have a friend who is useful to you. In some ways, I think probably today we wouldn't call them friends, we'd call them contacts, right? When we're networking through LinkedIn, it's to to be connected to people who will scratch our back and we scratch theirs through, you know, different ways we can do favor for each other. That's the friendship of usefulness when two people are able to help each other out in different ways. The friendship of pleasure is when two people are able to find enjoyment from things about the other person. And so it's kind of a delight just because of things the other person brings. So maybe you are a friend with someone because, man, whenever you're with them, they're just hilarious. Or maybe there's a friendship that through it makes you feel more important. If you think about it, most of our friendships, or many of them, kind of are related to this kind of idea of friendship of pleasure. So, you know, as a kid, maybe you like to play football. And you have some other kids that, you know, you don't really know them that well, but they play football as well. And so when you're playing recess, he's a friend because he's going to throw the football with you. That's a friendship of pleasure. Or as an adult, if you have a certain group of people that you just like hanging around with because it's always fun, you're getting something out of it, they're getting something out of it, that's a, a friendship of pleasure. You know, interestingly, in the last century or so, marriage more and more has been spoken of in these terms as well. So about 70 years ago, there has been an increased language of the idea of emotional needs. Are you familiar with this idea that, you know, just like we have a need for oxygen physically or for food, there's this concept, there's also emotional needs that we have. And it's become a common thing to say that really what marriage is about is the husband and the wife meeting each other's emotional needs. So I was reading one therapist who, who said that you know when a couple is struggling, what he tries to do is he tries to get the two of them to really pay attention to the deepest and most meaningful emotional needs the other person has, and then to do everything that they can to meet those needs. And he says once they can do that, once they kind of unleash the power of meeting each other's emotional needs, they fall in love with each other again, and boom, the relationship is back on solid footing. Now, if you think about it, by this definition of friendship of pleasure, that's exactly what is being talked about here. One person gets their emotional needs met. The other person gets their emotional needs met. Both are benefiting from each other. They're delighting in each other, and that's what makes their friendship strong. Now, here's the thing that I think is actually really interesting about what Aristotle says about this. He says, ultimately, a friendship of usefulness and a friendship of pleasure are the same thing. Because ultimately, it's not the friend, the person that you delight in, it's what you're getting out of that relationship, right? Whether it's on one hand getting a contact that can help you for, for work, or on the other hand getting your emotional need met, ultimately, what you are really being driven by in that relationship is the things that you get from the other person. Ultimately, a relationship that's based on pleasure in that way is just a form of transaction, right? I give you something where I meet your needs, you give me something where you meet my needs, and as long as that happens, we're both pretty happy about the relationship. Of course, that also means that the moment that that doesn't happen, well, is the relationship even worth it anymore? You know, um, Tim Keller, in his fabulous book on marriage, uh, writes this. He says, today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. I mean, do you see that? When we're talking about a relationship where it's based on the needs that that we find met within us and us trying to do that, we're not really talking about true friendship, are we? Or or more to the point, are we really talking about love? Because if I love you because you make me feel good, or because you make my life more enjoyable, am I really loving you? Or am I just loving myself because you're giving good things that make me happier? So Aristotle says there is a third kind of friendship. It's rare, but it's real. And he calls it a friendship of the good. And what he means by that is, in this friendship, rather than there being a delight in what you get out of the other person, it's more of a delight in what is in that person. When two people both delight in what is good and they see what is good in each other, and then what's even more, they find joy in seeing those two people get more and more of an experience of what is good in life. That bond of delighting in something that's in That, he says, has the potential of having a deep and meaningful and lasting relationship that's not based on what you get out of it. Now, detour is over. And I want to say what Paul is operating with, what he sees relationship is very similar to what Aristotle does, except he takes it further. He says, really, the relationship that is stable, the relationship that is healthy, is a relationship not built on some concept of the good, but it's a relationship that is fundamentally built on Jesus. Now, we've seen him already point in that direction. Think of of what we saw a few weeks ago in in Philippians chapter 2. What does he say in that? Let me remind you of it. It says, if you have any encouragement from Christ or comfort from his love, Then he essentially says, let that be what unifies you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you hear what's going on there? Your relationship, don't let it be defined by you seeking your own interests. By your own vanity being indulged. Because that's just a relationship based on need, but that's not the relationship that you should have. Let who Jesus is and how he has loved you so drive you that you consider someone more important than yourself and you're seeking to love them, not just be loved. That's not a relationship that's based on pleasure. That's a relationship that's based on Christ. And that's what we see here. Paul doesn't just talk about it in chapter 2. He actually demonstrates it here in chapter 4. And the way he does it, as I said before, is talking about this gift. Because gift, the way it's given and received, this is where the reality of the relationship kind of comes to light. Is this relationship just based on the transaction of what you've given me, or is it based on something deeper? And Paul wants to say, this is not what the relationship is. It's not just about what you give me and what I get out of it. There's something more going on. So he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord Of your renewed interest in me, there he is, he's honoring the gift, thank you for this, I appreciate it, not that I'm speaking of being in need, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Did you catch this? Paul is saying, our friendship is not about you meeting my needs. You want to know how I can be so sure of that? Because I've learned to be content. I can be content when things are going well. My mind doesn't kind of get thrown off by prosperity. And I am able to be content even when things are not going well. I am not this emotional need sponge just looking to you to fill it. I, I have contentment. And so therefore our relationship is not based on you meeting my needs. Now, how is he able to say that with such confidence? How does he have this contentment? Well, the answer takes us to the probably most misquoted verse in the entire Bible. In verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let me tell you, I've seen this verse on posters about running a marathon or about beating cancer or about passing your exams. That's not what it's about. When, it's, when Paul is saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he is talking about what he has just said. I am able to be content because of Jesus. Do you understand this? That you, in Christ, have a power to do something remarkable. You have the power to be content You can endure suffering. Paul was enduring suffering. So when he's saying I'm content, he's not saying I'm not without pain. He's not saying that life is just a bowl of cherries and it's awesome. He's not saying that. No, he is struggling. It's painful. There are things that he wished were different. But yet there is a sense where his joy is bulletproof because it's found in Christ. And that's what it is for us, too. When we're saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we're talking about I have the capacity in Christ to have a joy that even through the hardest time will still remain. Because I belong to Jesus. And Jesus belongs to me. And all that is his, his righteousness, his glory, his beauty is mine. And so because of that, I can be content. That's what we're saying. We're saying to live is Christ. Christ. So here's what Paul is saying in this. He's saying, thank you for this gift. But I want you to understand that's not the basis of a relationship because I'm already full. I am full. I am content in Christ Jesus. Now, why is that important for us? Here's what I believe this passage is telling us here. If you desire to have a healthy, meaningful friendship, whether we're talking about a friendship outside of the family or even a relationship within the family, you need to have your equilibrium, your contentment in Christ. Because until you are able to be at that point, you are still going to be this emotional needs sponge and you are going to be looking to other people to meet your needs. And that is always going to get in the way of love. So I was hearing, actually I know of a person who's, who deeply loved her son, deeply loves her, but in such a way that I think it became a means of her getting a sense of identity. I mean, her place in this world was that she was the mother of her son. In a sense, he met a need of figuring out who she was. And what happened over time is as the son grew older and became an adult, which, of course, is what we want for our children. She became threatened because she didn't know what her role was anymore because more and more he was becoming independent. And so she became a little bit more intense in trying to make sure that she was taking care of him. And he became more and more uncertain of that and kind of pushing her away. And eventually the relationship kind of broke and she lost her place in the world. Her her need to be the mom got in the way of love. Maybe some of you right now are in a marriage that if you're honest right now, you are feeling disappointed by you have this ideal of what marriage should be where where you feel loved and affirmed and there should be an easiness and a joyfulness and right now that is not how things feel and if you're honest this this disappointment is causing you to resent your spouse and that resentment is standing in the way of love or maybe you have a friendship that for a while, you just really, I mean, the person just is, is a ball of fun and you love hanging around with them, but now they're going through a really hard time and honestly, any time spent with them is just exhausting. And if you are really honest with yourself, you realize you've been kind of avoiding this friend because they're not as fun as they used to be. Do you see how, how meeting our needs stands in the way of Love. Paul says that the answer is to move out of this needs-based usefulness or pleasure or whatever kind of relationship it is. And to move out of it, we need to know that who we are in Christ is what gives us contentment. Only that, only when we are filled in Christ, are we now able to look at people differently, not as people who meet our needs, but as people in whom we can delight because of what God is doing in them. We can see the beauty of the person God has made. We can can rejoice when good things are happening to them. I mean, that's what Paul does at the very beginning. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Notice, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you gave this gift. And I think his point is, when I see this gift, I see what God is doing in you. I see the generosity you have. I see the beauty of this love. And I know that's a work of Christ. And and that just fills me with joy, even apart from how it affects me. That's, That's what love is. Now, he takes this not just in applying it to his own way of receiving the gift, but he also wants to apply this to them to help them to understand how they should view their giving of this gift. Because the reality is also giving can be terribly self-motivated, if we're honest. I was thinking this week in relation to this this point of a Seinfeld episode. I'm not one of those ones who can quote Seinfeld ad nauseum. I maybe know about three or four of them. But I remember this one. There's this one Seinfeld episode about the big salad. Maybe like three or four of you might know which one I'm talking about. There's this moment where um, George is about to go out for lunch with his girlfriend, And Elaine can't go to lunch with them, so she asks if he could just order for her a big salad and bring it back with him. So he does, and and he and his girlfriend come back, and it's his girlfriend who hands the salad to Elaine. And Elaine says, thank you, and the girlfriend says, you're welcome. And George is just kind of pausing, because you can tell he's really troubled by this. And so later on, he explains to Jerry, she just took credit for my salad. That's not right. You know, you buy a big salad for somebody, it would be nice if they knew it. And so eventually he actually confronts his girlfriend and he says, what I would like to know is how does a person who has nothing to do with a big salad claim responsibility for that salad and accept the thank you under false pretenses? (laughs) I remember this episode because that's me. I mean, I totally get it, don't you? I mean, the moments where we give... There is an expectation of of thankfulness. And, And if we're honest, when we are giving, there is some kind of motivation for self. Sometimes we give because we want to feel valued. I mean, why do you give? Isn't it oftentimes that you want to feel important, that you want to feel like you're doing something that they can prize you for being nice to them, that you can bring them happiness. At least you want to be thanked and appreciated. You want them to know you gave the big salad. And again, when we think about it, honestly, we realize that even in our giving, there could be an element where we are just trying to satisfy ourselves. And Paul won't let us stay there. When he speaks to the Philippian church, he says, I want you to understand, don't worry about the fact that I'm not saying that I needed this. Because really, when you're giving this gift to me, it's not just to me that you're giving it to You should lift your gaze much higher because there's something bigger that's going on. When you are giving this gift, it's actually to God that you're giving it to. So so verse 18, he says, I have received full payment. I'm well supplied. Once again, it's an expression of gratitude. But then after that, he says, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God you understand what he's calling? He's saying the very gift you gave me, it's like you put it on an offering, and on an altar, and it's a sacrifice. It's a gift you gave to God that was pleasing to him. See, the reality is you are never going to experience the gratitude you deserve from another person. If you're really loving someone well, you're going to be doing it in such a way that's so constant and oftentimes so subtle that your spouse or your friend will not notice just how well you are loving them. And so if you are looking to them to appreciate you rightly, you are going to be filled with resentment. You just are. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be frustrating. And once again, it will choke your love but you don't have to just look to your spouse for the gratitude. Here's what it's saying. Whenever you give something to someone else, in that moment you are also giving it to God. This is something that I've only, I think, recently come to understand, but it's a theme throughout Scripture. Uh, we saw this when we were talking about work in Ephesians where it says, slaves, when you are serving your master, realize that the person you're really serving is Christ Jesus. It says something similar. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That is, when you're obeying your parents, you're obeying Christ. There's this amazing verse in Proverbs that says, When we give to the poor, we are lending to God. And then we know Jesus speaks of how when we visit a brother who is in prison or who is sick, we're visiting Christ himself. Again and again, we are told that when we in Christ, Are showing love to others, we are actually giving a gift to God. And it's not just that we're giving a gift to Him. Even though our gifts are inadequate and have multiple motives, because we stand in Christ, we're told that when we give something to God, He accepts it. In fact, not only does He accept it, it says He is pleased. Now, just think of that for a moment. You are able to put a smile on God's face. Just as you, as you seek to love someone else faithfully, in Christ it is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God, Paul says. Now, if we can see that, then that can remove resentments because our giving is no longer motivated by whether or not we get credit for the big salad. Our... our 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 giving can be motivated by the fact that God himself, the one who created us, the one who loves us, God is pleased with the way that we are generous towards others. And Paul takes it even a step further. Because, you know, the reality is when we find ourselves seeking to truly serve others and truly give ourselves to others, there can be this fear that we feel. What happens if we just keep giving and giving and get nothing back? But do you notice what he says at the very end? He says, and my God... Will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's telling us as we give ourselves to God, as we give in love towards the others, God sees. And He supplies all of our needs. We feel like we're gonna run out of joy and we're gonna get burnt out. Christ says, I will give you my joy feel like we're going to get worn down in Christ we're given hope and we're given energy and we're given love all of the things that we feel like we're going to spend ourselves here's the paradox it's not like you can run out of generosity if it's being done in the way that's honoring to God the more that we give ourselves in generosity the more that God gives us generosity the more that we take delight in giving the more that God fills us with delight as we give ourselves to God he will supply all of our needs that's what Paul is saying so do you see what Paul is saying here? Do you see what scripture says? We don't need to be emotional need sponges. We are content in Christ, and that frees us up to love others for who they are and for what God is doing. And even when we're giving, we don't need to have gratitude and resent when that's not happening, because when we're giving, we have an audience far greater who sees and who smiles. To, to know Christ is something that enables us to also have friendship, because friendship is a part of life. And to live is Christ. You know, as is our custom, you know, after spending time in God's Word, my prayer, my hope is that there are different things that each of us have been finding ourselves thinking about, ways that, that as we consider what God is calling us to, that, that we say, oh. I, I want to confess this before God and I want to repent and 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 do something differently maybe it's in terms of the way we view our relationships so I'd like to give us a chance to just take a moment in confession for God and repentance and then I'll lead us in prayer together would you please join with me in silent prayer Father, you know us. You know us so much better than we know ourselves. Lord, even when we think that we are being selfless and generous, you see the selfish motivation that still is a part of it. And Lord, we want to be freed of that. We want to be people who truly love others. We want to be a people where friendship is real and there's not the pressure of meeting each other's needs because of the contentment we have in Christ. And Lord, when we're honest, we realize that is only going to come as you open our eyes, as you change our hearts. So Father, even as we confess our selfishness, we look to you asking you to fill us with your spirit that we, that we might take delight in who Jesus is and what he has done for us that we might be able to see all that we do as offerings to you and see how we are pleasing to you in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you please heal us and make our friendships whole that we might truly be your united people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. We read in Ezekiel, God saying, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. You will be my people and I will be your God. Present in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, our sins are forgiven through the work of Christ, and we've been given a new spirit. Live in the joy and peace of this assurance. Thanks be to God.